Hey family, my name is Andrew and I'm a pastor in training at Midtown Lexington. If you are new to Midtown, we're glad you're gathering with us. We want to get to know you, so we'd like to encourage you to fill out the Connect card found on our homepage. For all of you joining us, I want to keep you in the loop on a few things happening around Midtown. First, our Midtown class. Our 101 Midtown class is a three-week class to become a member. We'll cover the basics of how our church works, and at the end, we'll give everyone an opportunity to join our church family through membership. This class is for anyone looking to learn more about Midtown as we'll walk through the basics of who we are as a church, what we believe, and how we practice following Jesus together. This class will be three weeks of virtual learning starting October 4th, and you can sign up on our events page. Secondly, recovery begins on Monday, September 28th at our downtown church. Recovery meets in a 10-week cycle to help folks achieve freedom and healing from issues that seem unbeatable in their lives, whether that's your own personal sin or the effects of the sin of others in your life. Due to COVID-19, there are limited spots and pre-registration is required, and unfortunately, childcare will not be provided. Registration closes on Monday, September 21st, so if you'd like to join this semester, you must register by then. Details and registration can be found on our events page. Lastly, our next night of prayer and worship is on Sunday, September 27th at 7.30 p.m. outdoors at our downtown church. Bring along with you a book or two to donate as we're partnering with teachers around Richland One and Urban Young Life to distribute books of all grade levels, elementary through high school. Due to the pandemic, children have a limited access of books for a variety of reasons. We see this as a very practical way we can serve our city, and we hope you join us. Books can be dropped off at the donation table. And don't forget to bring a chair and a mask, and we hope to see you there. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, Midtown family. Uh, it's really good to get to be with you today. I'm really excited to get to open up God's Word together with everybody uh, this morning or this afternoon or evening or whenever you're watching it. I do want to say a special note to you guys who are watching at home. Uh, today's sermon is going to get into a lot of rather adult content. So uh, if you're watching with your kids and you think they're going to be paying attention and might uh, be aware of some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about, if you don't think they're quite ready to hear a conversation about some serious sexual topics, uh, if you want to, go ahead and pause the video now, get them situated, and come back once everything has kind of gotten, gotten together. But I just wanted to give you that word up front of what we're going to be addressing today. So I do want to pick up a bit where John left off last week in our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I want to start where I want to pick up, start by picking up on something that he touched on last week regarding what it means to be human, what it means to be a human being. In the opening pages of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, what we see is it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is something that theologians call the Imago Dei, or if you want to put it into English, you could say the image of God. And, and the, the idea is, is that the essence of humanity, the essence of what it actually means to be a human being is to be made in God's image. That this is the thing that sets us apart from everything else in the created order. This is the thing that makes us different, that we, uniquely above everything else, are made in the image of God. That humanity has this unique design and calling and dignity 
that other creatures do not have. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. We, we've used this example uh, previously in years past, but when a lion attacks another lion, what happens? Nobody gets any kind of PTSD or anything like that, right? Like there are other lions out there forming coalitions against lion-on-lion crime or anything of that matter, right? Like no, no no other lion is sitting there horrified of like, I can't believe this just happened. We've got to do something about it. No, just life goes on. But let a human do that to another human, and we've got a problem, right? We've got an issue. Another great example, uh, you know, you could eat a steak. And when you eat a steak, most people, most people aren't going to bat an eye. Eat a human, and we have an altogether different issue we've got to address. You're going to get locked up. And the reason we feel that way is because we intrinsically know, we know we're intrinsically stamped with something different about us, that human beings are different. We carry an inherent worth and dignity and honor by the sheer fact that we are made in God's image and different from everything else in the created order. And as humans, we are meant to share that honor and dignity towards one another. That true, what it means to be truly righteous is to honor God as God and to honor other human beings as those made in his image, or as the Bible summarizes it, to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what this means. Therefore, any act that treats a human as less than the image bearer of God that they are, whatever that may be, whether it's murder or oppression or slavery or anything like these, is condemnable. This is why God's people must care about things like racism and abortion and the litany of other injustices that can happen towards minorities and the immigrant and the poor. It's why we have to care about these things because despite how the media might portray them to us, these things are not first and foremost political or social issues. These things are image of God issues, imago Dei issues. Now, My guess is that as modern Americans, most of us who are sitting here or who are listening at home, like we hear these words and internally we all kind of go, yes, amen. I affirm that reality. Maybe like in our hearts, we're like high-fiving each other, so to speak, because we think that our moral compasses are somewhat attuned to this reality and that we organize our lives accordingly. The problem, however, is that Jesus is about to apply this in a way that you have been taught that it does not and should not apply. He's about to apply this to your sexuality and your marriages. Let's jump into Matthew chapter five. We're gonna pick up in uh, verse 27. This is what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so off the cuff right here, just like last week, Jesus is coming after the heart of God's law that the heart behind God's command against adultery is dealing with lust in the heart. But what exactly does Jesus mean when he talks about lust? Like, I know, I know most of us probably think we know what he means, but what exactly is lust? I find that lust is something of a troublesome word for us. At best, we narrow it down to sexual desire. That's kind of how we, we view it. So in our minds, lust becomes this rather religious word for talking about that feeling that we get when we want to have sex with someone else. But the truth is, is that that understanding of lust is just a bit too rudimentary than what Jesus is talking about here. So biblically speaking, the word for lust in Greek is the word epithumeo. 
And it's translated in other places as coveting, which is the wanting of something that is not yours or that you cannot have. It's a selfish and often insatiable desire. So greed understood in this sense, the selfish and insatiable desire for money and wealth is in this sense, the lust of money. That's what greed is. And honestly, it's very important to understand this. Like we need to be clear on this because when we understand that this is the type of thing that Jesus is talking about, it clears up what he's not talking about here. So for one, it means that Jesus is not simply talking about attraction or the appreciation of beauty. He's not saying anything about that. To look at a woman or a man and find them beautiful or attractive is not a sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Beauty is a good thing, a part of God's good design, and appreciating that is normal and healthy. For two, what we can know is that he is not condemning romantic or sexual desire wholesale or outright. According to the scriptures, romantic and sexual desire are also very good Things. If you don't believe me, go reread Genesis 1 and 2 and see God's first instructions to our first grandparents, right? Or notice how Adam breaks out into poetry when he first sees his naked wife. The Bible is pro-sex. It is pro-romance, all right? If you still don't believe me, if you want to, you know, really get in on the idea, go read the Song of Songs. It's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to celebrating love and sexuality between a husband and a wife, And all of that matters. Like, it matters immensely because if you don't understand it, you may be tempted to think that Jesus here is calling us to some sort of asexual, ascetic lifestyle or to be very stodgy and prudish when it comes to sexuality. But that's not the case. Jesus is the embodiment of the creator God who created the whole world and beauty and our bodies and sex. And he did it all with the skill and the wisdom and design and purpose of a master craftsman. This is who Jesus is. And this is how Jesus feels about sex. The problem that Jesus is addressing here isn't sexual desire per se, but something much deeper. Jesus is dealing with a core problem in the human condition. Namely, the objectification of other human beings. Specifically here, he's talking about the sexual objectification of another human being. Objectification is what happens anytime that we look at another human as less than an image bearer of God, but instead as something to be used and or consumed for our own purposes. Specifically here, it's turning someone into an object or a commodity or a consumer good that exists for our sexual gratification. Jesus is exposing that the heart behind God's command against adultery is to love and honor the image of God in other people. As Romans 13, 9 says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The heart of Jesus' sexual ethic is to be a person who doesn't treat other human beings as objects for selfish pleasure, but one that loves and honors their dignity and worth as persons made in the image of God. Jesus actually reiterates this just in a little different way just a few moments later. Let's jump down a few verses to verse 31. We'll come back to 29 and 30. This is what he says. He goes, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there is a ton that 
we could go in on here that we don't actually have time to unpack. There's a ton that this means for our marriages and divorce and all, all this sort of stuff, but I'll try to hit some of that in the midweek podcast. But what I want to draw your attention to here is one thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus is referencing a, uh, excuse me, a passage from Deuteronomy 24, and it's, it's not even really a passage about divorce per se, but about making sure that if divorce happens, that the woman who was divorced isn't exploited or taken advantage of. It's actually a pretty beautiful passage when understood correctly that shows God's heart for the vulnerable. But by Jesus's era, what had happened is that a popular interpretation of this verse came out that what it meant was that you could divorce your spouse for really any reason whatsoever. As long as what you did was, as long as you did what was necessary legally, everything was fair game. So if you just found your wife to be displeasing to you for whatever reason, you could write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. So if she no longer met your standards of beauty, you could send her away. If you were attracted to someone else or just didn't find her attractive anymore, you could send her away. Some interpreters even said that if she burnt your meal, this was reason enough to send her away. And in this cultural context specifically, this would have had devastating effects for women. It would have been devastating for many women. It would have left many without a stable means of survival, which meant that many would have had to resort to living on the street or giving themselves to prostitution or other oppressive work. And Jesus is saying here, this is not how it works in my kingdom. This is not how things go in my kingdom. You've missed the heart behind this. In fact, you are still treating another human as though they were an object that you could acquire or discard whenever you please. He's like, this is not how it's supposed to go. You see, he's addressing the same root problem that we just talked about with lust, a disregard for the dignity and worth of fellow image bearers. What Jesus is doing in these two sections of his sermon is he's applying the Imago Dei to how we think about and approach sex and how we think about and approach marriage. When you toss someone aside because they no longer meet your expectations or they aren't satisfying you the way you want to be satisfied, that is a denial of the image of God within them. When you sin sexually, when you lust, when you take that long second glance and drift off into fantasy, when you sexually objectify another human, that is the denial of the image of God within them. And if we can just be honest for a moment, this is the air we breathe, is it not? This is the air we breathe. Virtually everything in our culture from our dating apps to our entertainment, it is working to groom us to think about other human beings and human bodies as commodities. The most obvious example of this is porn. Uh, did you know that the porn industry in the US alone is a $16.9 billion industry? And the entire thing is built off the sexual objectification of bodies of other human beings for our own personal gratification. 25% of all online searches are for porn. For the record, that's 68 million per day. 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. And I don't think that's, and excuse me, and don't think that that's just, uh, I don't want to say this, I'm sorry. And don't think that just because Jesus is primarily talking to men here, that this is just a male issue. One third of every porn user is a woman. The average age that someone in our society is first exposed to porn is 11. That's the average. That's elementary school for what it's worth. It's everywhere. 
and lust-directed, objectifying content isn't just in porn anymore. It seeps into virtually all of our entertainment. In fact, copious amounts of our TV shows now have scenes that would have been considered porn just 15 years ago, and we don't even blink an eye at them, which ought to tell us just how desensitized to objectification we have actually become. But let's be clear. This is not just porn, all right? Porn is not the only place we see this. It's the easiest to spot and the easiest to call out, but it's all over the place. It's in our magazine aisles. It's in our conversations. It's in our advertisements. We're bombarded constantly with messages that a person's worth, value, and dignity are connected to their physical features and their sex appeal. We are groomed to look at one another and see each other through this lens. And this messaging doesn't just objectify the beautiful people who are portrayed, but it also, and we don't like to talk about this very much, but it also objectifies those who don't fit our cultural standards of beauty by communicating over and over that they are worth, they are somehow worth less. We rarely talk about the devastating effects our objectification has on those who don't have the same sexual allure, who don't turn heads walking down the sidewalk, who don't have the same leg up in the world that beautiful people have, which by the way, study after study shows that beautiful people do. They get promoted more, they have more money, they have more friends, they, just because they won the genetic lottery. And so what happens is, is we become this people who obsess over our bodies and obsess over the way we and others look. We, we become this people who obsess over how we look and who we attract, holding ourselves to some sort of standard that we strive for, a standard that we feel burdened to maintain and often depressed when we don't meet, that we gotta have this shape and we've gotta be this size or we have to be this tall and we begin to treat our bodies more like ornaments than instruments. We nip and tuck and lift and pull and implant and inject and Photoshop and filter all to try to attain this standard or cultural definition. And when we see others who do meet them, we crave them. We want them. We want to be like them. We fantasize about them or we envy them or we resent them and compare ourselves to them. And for those who don't, meet these standards, we tend to subtly just disregard. And what Jesus says about this, when this way of thinking and relating to others takes over, it's not just that it's wrong, but that it's dangerous. Let's keep moving. Look at verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, that sounds really aggressive because it is, and we'll come back to that. So hold that thought, all right? Keep moving though. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The word translated in English here as hell is actually the Greek word Gehenna or Gehenom in Hebrew. And it was actually a very real place that Jesus's audience honestly would have been very, very familiar with. Gehenna, otherwise known as the Valley of Hinnom, had a long and torrid history in the nation of Israel. Historically, it was a place where ritual pagan child sacrifice was performed. And in light of that, the prophets often spoke of it as a place of judgment. And by Jesus's day, it had become, for lack of a better term, the city dump. It was a city dump. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem where people would take their waste and filth and unusable junk, including dead animals, to get rid of them and burn. And its significance lived on in the Jewish psyche as a place of destruction and waste. And what Jesus is saying here is that this is where unbridled objectification will take you. 
This is where it leads. It takes you to the eventual destruction of your life, your mind, and your soul. Now, obviously, none of this is to take anything away from any future implications of what Jesus is, say, of what Jesus is saying about a literal hell, but it would be a miss to, uh, to not recognize the very present factors of this reality. You see, as much as hell is a destination, it is also a trajectory. Sometimes we can get so hung up on God sending people to heaven or hell at, when they die that we fail to realize that many of us are moving towards and or living in hell on earth right now. And what comes after this life for some of us is actually just going to be an extension of what we have already begun here. Jesus's point is that the end result of objectification is destruction. It is hell on earth. Now, I know that some of you are going to need me to back that up a little bit and prove it because we're constantly told in our society that sex and the like are no big deal. But I know there are others of you who know exactly what I'm talking about, who know exactly what Jesus is talking about, and you know that he's actually right. Some of you know how much damage and destruction can happen from this kind of objectification. Some of you started looking at objectionable content, objectionable content years and years ago. And at the time, it just felt harmless and benign. But now, you can't stop. And porn has become your go-to coping mechanism. And it has disrupted your relationships and your job and even your daily activities. You're addicted to it. And you feel owned by it like you can't escape it. It's hell on earth. For others of you, the cultural standards for body image are just always on your mind. They're always a thought you carry around with you. How you look is constantly in your head, especially when you're around other people. Perhaps even isolating you from others because you can't imagine being close to someone who might be more attractive than you. And if you were honest, you live with a low-grade resentment of them and of God for it. For you, it is hell on earth. And I know for many more of us, it has led, that, that specific thing has led us down some very, very dark roads of depression and anxiety and eating disorders and the like. Hell on earth. Some of us have been the victims of sexual assault. Someone ingrained with the idea that you were just an object for their personal pleasure acted that sin out on you, and you live in the wake of recovery from those events. Hell on earth. The world we live in is constantly trying to tell us that there's nothing to be concerned about here. But as soon as you ask someone who has been directly affected by it, that lie gets exposed. Ask a child of divorce, if their parents divorce, if their parent stepping out on their spouse was no big deal. Ask a spouse who just got cheated on or has a spouse who's addicted to porn. See if they say it's no big deal. They won't. Every time their answer will be, it's a huge deal and unbelievably destructive. Feminist author Naomi Wolf once reminisced about this, um, talking about some of her experience. She said, the young women who talk to me on, on campuses about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up they can never ask for what they want. And if they do not offer what porn offers, they cannot expect to hold a guy. 
The young men talk about what it's like growing up learning about sex from porn and how it's not helpful to them in trying to figure out how to be with a real woman. For the first time in human history, the images, power, and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. I heard an interview recently with a relatively famous female comedian where she spent the first half of the interview actually discussing how the only thing that can really get her turned on anymore is rape. Now, in her words, it's not real rape, but consensual, fake rape, like that's a thing. She said, I want to be, uh, see people treated like objects, and honestly, I want to be treated like an object. And she basically celebrated it like this unrestrained perspective on sex was so liberating. But in the second half of the interview, it was almost like she lifted a curtain back on what was really going on, and she confessed, you know, to be honest, I feel like a terrible person. I feel like a terrible person, and I've been pretty depressed, and I am really afraid that I am never going to find love and that this is just going to be it. It was utterly, utterly heartbreaking. But this is what she believes about herself because this is what objectification produces. This is what it does. It teaches us to think about ourselves and each other in these ways. It diminishes and dehumanizes both those we objectify and even ourselves. And it truth is, is it doesn't stop there. According to Dr. John Fobert, the president of an organization that researches sexual violence called One in Four, he said that there have been over 50 studies showing a direct link between pornography and sexual violence. Because what happens when you view people as objects for long enough is you eventually treat them that way. Taina bien Ame, I don't know if that's how you say her name, it looks like it's French, uh, the executive director for the Coalition Against the Trafficking of Women said that pornography is really prostitution on screen, that the traffickers, traffickers are the same, the pimps are the same, the only difference is they have a camera in the room. Dr. Melissa Farley, the executive director of Prostitution Research and Education, went on to add that there isn't pornography over here and trafficking over there, they are interlinked. While you think it's just you and your computer screen, there are real men and real women with souls being oppressed on the other side. And this is what Jesus is saying, that objectification is never benign. It is not a victimless sin. It's hell on earth, whether that be addiction to porn or the inability to experience sexual pleasure with a real human being, whether it be eating disorders and body image issues or the crippling burden of guilt and shame, the death of intimacy or the death of a marriage or the collateral damage of an affair, all the way down to outright mental and physical oppression to those we objectify. Destruction is always coming in its wake. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. And this is why his call to action seems so extreme. Because if this is what objectification does, then it must be rooted out. If it brings hell on earth, we must leave it behind. If we are gonna follow Jesus, then we must take decisive action against the objectification of other image bearers. Back in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. The way of Jesus calls for radical action towards sin. The way of Jesus calls for radical action towards sin. It is hard to find ways that Jesus gets more aggressive than this. 
Jesus, and for the record, Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation here. I don't want you to get that twisted. If he was, if I may, he was missing the most obvious part of the body to cut off. No, it's not, it's not hyper, uh, excuse me, it's not literal. He's using hyperbole here for effect. But he is serious. He's very serious. Take drastic measures. Wage war on your sin to root it out of your life. Don't just manage your sin, but amputate it. Don't just manage your objectification, amputate it. And the question this forces upon us is, am I willing to take radical action against objectification in my life? Am I willing to potentially look silly in the name of fighting this sin? Because here's the thing, most other people aren't gonna do this and nobody is gonna do it for you. Are we willing to do whatever it takes when it comes to honoring the God-given value and worth of fellow human beings? And listen, I don't know what cutting your hand off or plucking your eye out or whatever it may be should look like for you. The truth is, is I think that Jesus wants us to wrestle with this and what it means for each of us individually. But what is the thing that leads you to temptation? What is that thing? Cut it off. Cut it off. Because the temptation is objectification and objective, object, excuse me, objectification leads to destruction. Cut it off. Maybe there are certain shows that just need to be off limits for you. Maybe TVMA needs to be TV not for me. Maybe that's how it needs to be. You, maybe you even need to consider the fact that maybe, maybe there are certain shows that aren't tagged that way that actually aren't good for you. I'm about to step on some toes here and I kind of apologize for doing so, but not really. At some level, you might consider that The Bachelor is not good for you. That what The Bachelor does is that it objectifies humans and relationships and it's not healthy for you, that it's not good for your mind and your soul. Maybe you need to cancel Netflix. Maybe you just need to get rid of it. Maybe you even need to have a TV-free home or life. Maybe you don't need to be alone with your computer. Maybe, heaven forbid, you need to have a dumb phone. Maybe you need to invest in accountability software. Maybe you need to stop following certain people on Instagram because when you see what they post, it leads you to objectify their body. Or maybe you need to delete Instagram altogether because it leads you to objectify yourself. Maybe you need to stop hanging out at bars and parties where you know you're likely gonna be just searching for the best commodity to go home with somebody who's not your spouse. What does it mean for you? What do you need to cut off? How do you need to understand that? I think it certainly means that we as a people need to strive collectively for a culture of honor. That we need to strive to honor each other in the ways that we relate to our spouses and our brothers and sisters and even ourselves. Meaning that we need to repent for the ways that we have embodied otherwise. Whether that be habitual porn use or addiction, an objectifying thought life, or perhaps even a physical fair or divorce, whatever it may be. We ought to confess these things to God, our spouses, and our community to rid them of their power, to put them to death, that we may walk in the way of Jesus. You know, I wasn't sure if I was gonna go here, but um, I am. Uh, if you're a married person, honestly, if you're a single person too, you probably need to hear this, but if you're a married person and you find yourself discontent with your spouse's body type, 
And I don't mean that you are concerned with their health. Like there's certainly room to be uh, concerned for how your spouse stewards the instrument that God has given them. But I'm talking about those of you who would say that a certain layout of a woman's curves are your type and your wife doesn't have that layout. So you conclude that she's not your type. Listen, biblically speaking, your wife, whatever shape she is, is your type. Full stop. And to think about her body otherwise is an exercise in denying the image of God in her. And you need to repent because you know who made her body? God made her body. Likewise, women, you need to hear me. Prince Charming is a myth. Prince Charming is a myth. That guy you keep comparing your husband to, you are only seeing his highlight reel. And, you, and don't think that by fantasizing about life or sex or marriage with him that you are not being equally objectifying. You need to cut it off. Single brothers and sisters, Jesus' words here should radically shape the way we think about dating and relationships in terms of what we're looking for and how we approach it. Listen, and I, I get it. It's hard these days. It is very hard these days, harder than it probably was for me, just for what it's worth. But hear me, a lot of the ways that you are being told to approach finding a relationship is just turning people into a consumer product, into a commodity. Like what you see, swipe right. Don't like it, swipe left. At some point, that does something to how you think about another human. I would go as far as to say that as if, if as followers of Jesus, we are approaching dating and relationships in the exact same way as the rest of the world, we have totally missed a huge aspect of what Jesus has to say here about humanity. We gotta cut that off. We gotta cut it off. And here's where I just wanna land. I, I know some of us, we don't just find Jesus's words here challenging. For some of us, we find them darn near impossible because we feel so owned by this. We feel owned by it, that it's just taken over our lives in all sorts of ways, and we don't know which way is out in far more ways than I can imagine. I know when it comes to sexual sin, most every single person I am talking to today has been affected by it, either by committing it or having it committed against you. And for the record, I just want you to know that includes me. Like I don't stand up here on some sort of ivory tower as though I'm exempt. My past is colored with sins of porn use and objectifying women just to boost my meager self-esteem. I, I have been there. But the good news of Jesus is that he came for the sinner and sinned against. And while the sexual ethic of his kingdom is high, this same King Jesus spent a lot of his time with people who had not kept it. In fact, those are the very people he said he came for. Over and over and over again in the accounts of Jesus' life, we see him moving towards those who were sexually broken and needed healing. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the prostitutes, over and over again. Jesus moves towards them with great love and compassion and grace. Jesus loves the sinner and those in need of healing. And friends, that means you. 
That means you too. He's not calling us to this to bring condemnation onto us, but rather to give true life to us. And in him, and you need to hear me on this, in him, you are freed from your guilt and you are washed of your shame. You are freed of the guilt of the sexual sin you have committed and you are washed of the shame of the sin that has been committed against you. Your sin and the sin committed against you is not the defining characteristic of who you are. Christ is the defining characteristic of who you are. He has come not only to free you from the guilt and shame of sin, but also to deliver you from its power. He's also come to deliver us from its power. Do not let Jesus' high calling here be misconstrued as an impossible calling. You can find freedom from lust. He is not calling you to something impossible. Hard? Yes. Impossible? No. It will take time and community and above all, the power of his Holy Spirit. But that is exactly what Jesus has brought you we must understand that the look to lust is a choice. It is nothing more than a habitually trained and culturally reinforced rhythm of the mind, albeit a deeply ingrained rhythm for many of us, but a rhythm nonetheless. It is not the law of gravity, and it can be broken. You can be transformed into an unlustful person like Jesus, but it will cost you. And the question is, are you willing to pay that price? And in light of Jesus's words here, I would add, can any of us actually afford not to pay it? Let me pray for you. God, we, uh, we need you. I am reminded, even as I preach, just of how prevalent this struggle is for so many of us, how we are just groomed to think objectifiably about others that we see, how we're groomed to think objectifiably about ourselves, that we sexually objectify so much around us. And we need your Holy Spirit to free us from thinking these ways and acting these ways and believing these lies. And Spirit, I pray that you would do it that you would set us free and that you would help us to identify what needs to be put to death. So God, please, I pray this week that you would expose that to us, that you would bring to the forefront of our mind's eye what needs to be put to death and give us the willpower to confess it and put it to death, to cut it off. God, we're gonna need your spirit's power for that and I pray that you would give it. And God, above all, we are thankful for your grace. We are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that this is not a word of condemnation, but this, this is a word of life because you have brought us life in Jesus and you do not hold our sexual sin against us and you do not define us by our most recent mistake, whether it be the first time or the thousandth time, but you see us as perfectly righteous because of Jesus's great exchange for us, that he took our sin and gave us his righteousness and God, that is where we hang our hat and I pray that that would free us up this week to fight and fight hard against the things that bring destruction. We need you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.